0: Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. It's good to see you here this morning and I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. And uh, I will read for us this morning Luke's account of the birth of Christ. And so I will read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. If you're using one of the Bibles uh, that we provide for you, you'll find our passage on page 857, page 857. I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. This is God's Word. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem Father, we cannot imagine how many times this account of the birth of Your Son, the Lord Jesus, has been read in many different languages, in many different places, all over the world. Lord, for so many of us, we've heard this account read over and over and over again, Christmas after Christmas. We thank You, Lord, for these precious words, for this historical account of the birth of Your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that as we turn to it again now, that You would give us fresh eyes to see what is here, that You would open our hearts, Lord, to receive this good news. And we pray, Lord, that even as the shepherds and the angels do here, that we would glory in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. As I just mentioned in the prayer, uh, there is in the history of the world, no birth that has been celebrated more than the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And Luke records it for us here, in particular in verse 7. He records the event, "...and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger." But the question is, why is the birth of Jesus significant? What is its meaning? What is its purpose? And why is it different from anyone else's birth. And to understand the meaning and the significance of Jesus's birth, we must turn to the Scriptures. Because it's in the Bible that God reveals to us the significance and the meaning of the birth of Christ. In Tim Keller's book entitled Hidden Christmas, Keller recalls that in 1961 the Russians put the first man into space. The Russian that they sent into space, his name was Yuri Gargorin. And Nikita Khrushchev was the Russian Prime Minister, or Premier at that time. And once Gagarin went into space, uh, Khrushchev mocked Christians and said, you know, Gagarin has now gone up into space and he's discovered that there is in fact no God. You see, Christians have said for centuries that God is in the heavens, but we've gone into the heavens now and we didn't see Him. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian author, then wrote an article in response entitled, The Seeing Eye. And Lewis made the point that if there is a God who created us, we could not discover Him by going up into the air. That God would not relate to us as a man on the second floor relates to a man on the first floor. Like we could just go up the stairs and see Him and talk to Him and then come back down. No, rather, Lewis said... That if there is a God and he has created us, he would relate to us as Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. You see, Shakespeare is the creator of Hamlet and he is the creator of his world. And if Hamlet is to know anything about Shakespeare, then Shakespeare must reveal information about himself in the play in which Hamlet finds himself. Shakespeare must write himself into the play. And that is in fact what God has chosen to do. And we see this especially at Christmas time. God has chosen to write Himself into the play of human history. In the person of His Son Jesus and in the Holy Scriptures. And it's as we turn to the Holy Scriptures that God reveals to us the purpose and the meaning and the significance of the birth of Christ. I've entitled our message this morning, The Birth of Christ and the Humble Joy of His People. And as we turn to Luke chapter 2 this morning, I want us to see the humility of Christ, the humility of His people, the joy of Christmas, and then we'll consider briefly three responses. So first of all, the humility of Christ. Look there in verses 1 to 7 and we read these words. and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, what I want you to notice here in these verses, in particular in verse 4, is the references to David. Look there in verse 4 of chapter 2. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, here it is, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he, that is Joseph, was of the house and lineage of of David. So what we see here is that Joseph and Mary they returned to Bethlehem to be registered for the census that had been decreed because Joseph himself was a descendant of David. Now this is very significant because approximately a thousand years before these events took place, God had made a promise to King David that one of David's descendants would rule on David's throne forever. And so Luke here informs us of Joseph's lineage, of his connection to David, that he's a descendant of David, in order to help us understand that this one who is to be born will in fact be a descendant of David. That he is a king. That he is in fact the long-awaited promised Messiah who would rule and reign on the throne of David. But notice as well, that this is a different kind of king than we would expect. We get a hint of this actually in verse seven. Look there again. We've looked at this verse a couple of times already. She gave birth to her firstborn son. Here it is. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So you see this is unlike the birth of what we would expect to be a, a, the birth of a great king. This king, in fact, is born in obscurity. There was, Luke tells us, no place for them in the inn. He was, in fact, placed in an animal's feeding trough. That's what a manger is. They laid him in a manger. And notice as well that there was no great publicity surrounding the birth of Jesus. There was no lead story in the Roman times. There was no palace announcement that a king had been born there was no media team right there was no documentary entitled Mary's royal pregnancy the birth of Jesus of Nazareth and we have to consider ourselves why, we have to consider uh, for ourselves why was it that Jesus was not born in the era of television i mean if we had been orchestrating these events right If we had been planning the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, maybe we would have chosen the era of television. Or how about the the era of social media? What if Joseph had uploaded on Instagram weekly pictures of the progress of Mary's pregnancy? What if he had made a public announcement of Jesus' birth on TikTok? Can you imagine the shares and all the likes he would have gotten? But Jesus quietly enters into the world without pomp, without circumstance, without fanfare, in obscurity, and in humility. And why is this the case? Why was Jesus born this way? Well, in part, because Jesus was not just being born so that he might be among us. But He was coming to identify with us. In a world that is full of alienation, estrangement, broken relationships, isolation, loneliness, danger, sorrow, pain. In that kind of world, Jesus chose a stable and not a palace. He chose a manger and not a throne. So that with integrity, the Lord Jesus can say, I know what it's like to be poor. I know what it's like to be marginalized. I know what it's like to be isolated and alienated. Consider this the Son of God can say with authenticity and integrity, I know what it's like to be insignificant. And he's not indifferent and He's not unsympathetic to our pain. He was alienated and estranged from us in His birth so that He might truly be with us in our suffering. We'll see in a few moments that Christmas is a joyful time of the year, of course, but it can also for many people be a very difficult time of year. It can be a lonely time. It can be a time that reminds us of broken relationships, and distance from family, and disappointment of dreams not fulfilled. I know a man who shared even this Christmas season that because of estrangement between him and his son, he has a teenage son, that when the holidays come around, whether it's Thanksgiving, Christmas, he doesn't want any decorations, he doesn't want any fanfare, he doesn't want any tree put up at Christmas because it's just too painful. Too painful of a reminder of the broken relationships of his family. Singles oftentimes will struggle during the Christmas season, even to attend church, right? Wondering, is there a place for me? Christmas can also, especially, be a difficult time as we remember the death of loved ones. We've had a number of faithful saints here at Crawford Avenue, even in this last year, go to be with the Lord. And especially as Stephen shared with us this morning and prayed, we are grieving even this morning as a church, the death of Miss Joyce Meadows, a faithful, dear saint who was such a wonderful friend to all of us and such an example of faithfulness to the Lord. And Jesus came into the world the way he came into the world, in part to communicate to us that he knows our pain. That He knows our sorrow. That He knows what it is to live in a world that is broken. He knows what it is to be alienated and estranged. He knows what it is to carry sorrow. He was in fact a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He came to identify with us. He came to be with us. Last week we gathered together for our Christmas sing, and one of the hymns that we sang was Holy, O Holy Night, one of my favorite Christmas hymns, and in that hymn the author poetically expresses what we've been speaking of here now with these words, the King of kings lays thus in lowly manger in all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need, to our weakness he is no stranger. Christ chose obscurity. He chose a manger so that He might identify with us in our sorrow and in our trials. Here we see the humility of Christ. But then we also see, secondly, the humility of His people, the humility of His people. So look there in verses 8 and 9, and we read these words, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear." Now one of the things that's interesting is if you take a step back and look at this passage as a whole, verses 1 to 20, you would notice that the shepherds are mentioned more than anyone else in the text. In fact, whether they are mentioned explicitly or there is simply a reference to them. It is some 20 times that the shepherds are mentioned. And one of the reasons why this is significant is because shepherds were very low on the socioeconomic scale in the first century. They lived outside of the town. They lived outside and away from the city. They tended to sheep. They most likely were poor Their work was unattractive. You remember even King David himself before he became king. When Samuel came to gather together Jesse's brothers or sons to determine which one of them would be king, David didn't even show up, right? All his other brothers came before Samuel. Samuel says, none of them are going to be the king. Do you have any other sons, Jesse? He says, oh, yes, but he's a shepherd. He's out in the field. They had to call him in from the field. Shepherds' work was unattractive. There's some evidence as well that they were known to be untrustworthy. We know that later on in history, shepherds were not allowed to serve as witnesses in court cases. And isn't this remarkable that as we begin to read Luke chapter 2, we see that it opens up with this very kind of grand statement. You see these these individuals that are mentioned at the opening of Luke chapter 2. Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor of Rome, the most powerful man in the world at the time. Quirinius, who is the governor of Syria. And then the birth of Jesus is recorded. And we would think surely an announcement would come to Caesar Augustus about the birth of Jesus, right? But for Caesar Augustus, for Quirinius, there are no angels, right? There's no announcement. There's no sign. In fact, they are left completely in the dark. Completely unaware that anything has happened of eternal significance. And instead, the angels appear to lowly, humble, insignificant shepherds. Just as a side note here, this in fact speaks to the historical veracity of Luke's account. That the first, consider this, we've been working through in this series, Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. Consider, who are the first recipients of the message that a Messiah, a Savior is going to be born? Elizabeth, Mary, and the shepherds. Now, in the first century, women and shepherds were not considered to be credible witnesses in court. And so if you were making up a story and trying to convince people that someone was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, your star witnesses in the first century would not be women and shepherds. But you see, Luke wasn't making this up. He was simply recording history as it occurred. But there's even more than an historical note here. There's a theological note point. There's meaning, there's purpose behind this history. There's a there's a reason why it happened this way, because it tells us something about God. It tells us that the coming of Christ is for all people, even for lowly shepherds. And isn't that good news? The gospel is especially for those whom society might be inclined to overlook, to underestimate. This is the reason why the religious and political class of Jesus' day opposed him. They grumbled and they complained. Think about it. Herod, great king Herod, the Sanhedrin who ruled over the Jewish religious life. The religious leaders, the Pharisees. They were offended by Jesus. Because he didn't take into account their preferred status. They despised him. But in contrast... So many of the prostitutes and the thieves and the poor and the despised and the sick and the diseased, they welcomed and rejoiced in the coming of Jesus. It was Jesus himself who said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So why is it that Jesus's parents are Mary and Joseph? Nobody knows about Mary and Joseph and not Caesar and his wife. Why is it that the key cities in Jesus's birth are Nazareth and Bethlehem? Insignificant locations on the map rather than Rome and Jerusalem. Why is it that he's born in obscurity and placed in a manger and not born in a palace? and placed in a golden bassinet. Why do angels declare this cosmic event to shepherds and not to the religious leaders of the day? Because God intends to communicate that Christ came for all people, especially for the lowly, especially for the humble. Listen, my friends, especially for those who feel their need for Him. Do you feel your need for Him? and perhaps He has come for you. Third, the joy of Christmas. The joy of Christmas. Look there in verses 10 through 14. An angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Now in verse 10, actually just in a few words there, we have encapsulated the message of Christmas, really the message of Christianity itself. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. That really is the message of Christianity. Let's just look at this in a few of its parts. First of all, we see that the angels say, fear not. The shepherds, when they first saw the angels, were overcome with fear. And in one sense, this is appropriate. This is proper because the angels are supernatural and they are representatives of God. And so there is a proper reverence. There's a proper awe when we think about God and who He is. But oftentimes, this sense of reverence and awe can expand to a sense of dread, a kind of run-and-hide fear, a fear that results in isolation, a fear that says, God is holy and I am not, so I'm out of here. Some of you may experience this kind of fear in your own lives as you attempt to relate to the Lord. Maybe you have a hard time relating to God, you consider Him to be like a angry explosive father who's never satisfied and so you retreat from him and there's this underlying subconscious sense of dread you never are willing to step too far in never get too close the message of christmas is fear not the apostle john beautifully articulates this truth in first john chapter 4 verse 18 where he says there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love." So we see the first part of this message is fear not, but but notice there's another part of this message, and it's a message of good news. You see there in verse 10, the angels say, "'Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people.'" And what is this good news? Well, the angel goes on to tell us in verse 11, For, because, this is the reason why the shepherds should not fear, For, the angels have come with good news, and this is the good news, verse 11, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now notice this, this is very important. The good news is not, don't fear, because God's, He's really not holy. So, you don't need to be afraid. The good news is neither fear not, because you're not as sinful as you thought you were. You're more holy than you thought you were. That's not the good news either. Rather, the good news is fear not, because God is holy and you are not, but God has sent a Savior Christ the Lord who will save you and redeem you from your sins. This is what we so desperately need. This is what the Jews in the first century had such a difficult time understanding. Because of their sin and waywardness they had been under oppression of other nations like Assyrian, and Babylon, and Persian, and Greece, and Rome, and they would always thought if the Messiah would come and He would deliver us from these Political oppressors from this military oppression, then we would be set free. We would be delivered. They located all of their problems outside of themselves. The problem is Assyria. The problem is Babylon. The problem is Persia. The problem is Greece. The problem is Rome. And we have a tendency to do the same, don't we? The problem is our spouse. The problem is our children. The problem is our school. The problem is our church. The problem is our government. If God would just do something about our government. And yes, there is a sense in which the Lord Jesus when He comes will make all things right and He will address various things that cause pain and difficulty and hardship in our lives, but the Lord Jesus comes to help us understand first and foremost that our greatest problem is not outside of ourselves, but it's inside ourselves. It's not external, but it's internal. It's a heart that is persistent in its unwillingness to love and trust and follow a God who created us and loves us and wants what's good for us. That's our greatest problem. And the Lord Jesus has come to save us from ourselves. How would he do that? The shepherds could not foresee at this time and at this point. But the Christ, the Savior, the Lord, would take upon himself the sin and the waywardness of his people. He would die on the cross in their place and bear the punishment for their sin. So that through faith in him they might be forgiven. They might be redeemed. And they might be shown grace and mercy. And this is the next part of the message. Great joy. You see it there in verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. And here's the consequence of great joy that will be for all the people. And this passage we see here in Luke chapter 2, it is in fact filled with joy. You see there in verse 13 and 14, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. So initially there was one angel and now there's a multitude of angels. And they're praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In verse 20 we see it again. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and all they had seen as it had been told them. Our mission as a church is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy and live and proclaim the gospel. And so one of the things we see in the scriptures is that we glorify God as we enjoy the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what gospel means. It means good news and it is to be enjoyed, it's to be celebrated. We are to rejoice in the fact that we're forgiven in Christ, that he saved us from our sins, that we're citizens of his kingdom and that one day Jesus will reign victoriously over all creation and there will be no more disease, there will be no more heartache, there will be no more death, there will only be good health and perfect bodies and endless life and overflowing joy and so we are to rejoice. Martin Luther the great Protestant reformer was writing a fellow friend of his one time who was struggling with guilt, and condemnation. Luther wrote these words to him, quote, Be of good courage and cast these dreadful thoughts out of your mind. Whenever the devil pesters you with these thoughts, at once seek out the company of men, drink more, joke and jest, or engage in some form of merriment. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death in hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death in hell. What of it? Does this mean I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where He is, there I shall be also." End of quote. This is good news of great joy. And to walk in that joy often requires faith, a battle of faith, to believe the good news about Jesus. So we see the humility of Christ, we see the humility of His people, we see the joy of Christmas. But then, finally, in verses 15 through 20, I want us to look briefly at three responses. Look there in verse 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorified, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, in verses 15 through 20, there are three different responses to this good news. Two of the responses are commendable, we should follow these examples, and one is dangerous and we should be warned. The first response is the response of the shepherds. Look there in verses 15 through 18 and then again in verse 20. You'll see here that the shepherds are really a model for those who are seeking Jesus. Notice what they do. First of all, they receive this good news and they investigate. Look there in verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see these things that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they say, let's go see, let's go check this out. Then in verse 16, they find it to be true. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Then in verse 17, so they've investigated, they found it to be true. Now in verse 17, they tell others. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that the Lord had told them concerning this child. And then finally, in verse 20, they glorify and praise God. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So listen, my friends, if you identify this morning as someone who's seeking Jesus, seeking to discern who He is, then the shepherds are a wonderful example for you to follow. You have heard the good news. Even this morning, we've read it in the Scriptures, you've heard it. I've explained it to you this morning, in these few moments that we've been together. Now what will you do with it? Let me encourage you, my friends, that like the shepherds here, as they discern, this good news is worthy of your investigation. They went to see, is it true or is it not? The best thing you could do perhaps this Christmas season is to determine, to investigate the claims of this good news. The New Testament opens with four accounts of the life of Jesus. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Oh, my friends, let me assure you, this message is worthy of your investigation. Open your Bibles and read the Gospel accounts. Read them for yourself. Read the story of this man who has changed the world and is worshipped all over the globe, even this morning. Consider it for yourself, whether it's true or not. I know for myself, I heard about the person of Jesus my entire life. grew up in the church, but it wasn't until I got alone by myself in my room when I was in high school and I began to read the gospel accounts for myself and fell in love with the person of Jesus. He changed and transformed my life. And once you find that He is true, follow Him. Tell others and glorify Him for His grace and mercy. The second response we see here, though, in our text the first is the shepherds, the second is all the people, or we could say the crowds. And this is dangerous. Look there in verse 18. And all who heard it, that is the message that the shepherds had shared, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now, this, sense, this, this, this word here, wonder, is not like they're wondering whether it's true or not. It's more like wonder like awe, amazement. They're wondering at what the shepherds have told them. So they hear the message of Jesus. They hear the message of his birth. They hear this message of salvation and they recognize that it's worthy of wonder. It's worthy of awe. And at first we would think, well, this is positive, right? And in one sense it is, but we we have to be careful here. I don't have time to show you this this morning, but in the gospel of Luke, this word wonder is actually used a number of times over and over again. And what we see in the Gospel of Luke, and in the other Gospels as well, is that there are many times where the crowds and the multitudes respond positively with Jesus, but it's short-lived. Jesus will heal someone, or He'll challenge the religious people, or He'll teach with authority, and the crowds and the multitudes will wonder with awe. They're struck by the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus, but then they quickly fall away. When following Jesus becomes less entertaining. When following Jesus becomes difficult. When following Jesus becomes hard. When following Jesus becomes uncomfortable. They lose interest. They wonder at Jesus. But they are not changed by Him. Oh my friends, listen this morning. It is not enough to be intellectually challenged by Jesus. It is not enough to be subjectively moved by Jesus. For those of you who have not yet genuinely committed your life to Christ, understand this Christmas is a dangerous time. It's a danger to be moved by a Christmas musical. Or to be moved by the hearing of a sermon on the person of Jesus. Or to be moved at a Christmas scene where we're singing the great hymns of the Christian faith. And then not be changed by Jesus. It is dangerous to think that that is the meaning and purpose of Jesus and that's it. Wonder is only beneficial if it leads to genuine trust in Jesus and a transformed life. Oh my friends, if you've been struck by the Lord Jesus, praise God. But let me encourage you to take it a step further. Do business with Jesus. Trust Him as your Savior. Believe that He is the perfect sacrifice for your sins and submit to Him as Lord. Give Him all of yourself. Follow Him. And He will save you. So, the first group is the shepherds. They investigate. They trust. They share. They glorify. Praise God. The second group is the people or the crowds. They wonder with awe, but it seems that it's not deep. It's not personal. It doesn't affect them and change them long term. The third example is Mary. Look there in verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This Christmas season, as we've been working through Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, I've been struck afresh with Mary's response to this message that she would give birth to this special child. You remember back in chapter 1, Gabriel comes to Mary with this announcement that she's going to give birth to the Son of God. And we might assume that in that situation, well, of course, Mary would be excited, right? She would be thrilled. But in fact, there were all kinds of reasons why Mary would be tempted to be anything but excited. She was young, maybe 16 years old. Maybe younger. She was a virgin. She had not been married yet. Once word got out, Mary's reputation could be ruined forever. And it was likely that Joseph, who was betrothed to her, would break off the engagement. And at that point, Mary would become unmarriable. That's actually a word. I looked it up. She would become unmarriable which would likely result in social and financial hardship for the rest of her life. And what was Mary's response? In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me as you have spoken. Humility, submission, faith, trust. And now Mary receives this message from the shepherds, and what is her response? We see it here in verse 19. She treasures what she's received. That word treasure there means to preserve, to guard, to keep safe. So she preserved, she guarded, she kept safe in her mind this message. It's close to the idea of memorize. So she wasn't going to forget what she heard. She was going to commit it to memory, and why? So that, as the text tells us, she could ponder it in her heart. She could consider it and reflect upon it and think on it. Mary had already believed the report that Gabriel had given to her. But the more Mary heard, the more she treasured, and the more she pondered, and the more she pondered, and the more she treasured, the more she was changed by this good news. Listen, my friends, if you want to be changed by the gospel, if you want to be changed by the good news of Jesus Christ, you can't just let it wash over you. You got to let it seep deep into your mind and into your heart. You've got to turn it over. You've got to give it thought. You've got to let it work on you and read you and examine you and change you. And that's what Mary demonstrates for us in Luke chapter 1 and 2. Fear not. This is the message of Christmas. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people how my friend will you respond to that message let's go to the Lord in prayer father we do thank you and praise you this morning for the good news of the birth of your son Jesus Christ We thank You that by His death and resurrection from the dead, You have granted us the forgiveness of sins and promised us an everlasting and eternal kingdom that will never come to an end. Father, as we hear this good news this morning, we do pray that our hearts would be filled with wonder and with awe. But Lord, we pray that it would not stop there. That we would truly look to the Lord Jesus in faith, trusting in Him, And that we would follow Him with all our heart. Take this good news now, Lord. And we pray that you would apply it to our lives. That we might be full of joy and hope in the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen.